Well, it's great to be back for me personally and for my new bride and I. Uh, <laughs> we are really pleased to be back. We had a great time away and we wanted to thank you really. We wanted to thank you for, as a church, both corporately and individually, for your generosity and your kindness towards us. It's been uh, quite a year for us, uh, just exactly a, week, a year ago this weekend, I think, we um, took on the dual challenge of me leading the church and us getting engaged. So it's been quite a year for us and we're so, so grateful for all of the kindness and the encouragement and the generosity that you have shown us both. So thank you, thank you very, very, very much. And uh, speaking of our wedding day, uh, it reminds me of a certain uh, event or certain day prior to the wedding day when I found myself in a pretty dusty storage cupboard. And uh, in fact, it was the third time I've been in this, this uh, particular storage cupboard. And I was back there for the third time trying to find some fairy lights. Now, if you know me at all, you'll know that fairy lights are not particularly my favorite thing. I don't have any huge value on fairy lights. They've never been a huge priority in my life. Fairy lights have never meant a massive amount to me. But there I was, back in there for the third time, basically sweating profusely, trying to find these fairy lights, digging under cupboards and outside of boxes. I've been told they were definitely there, and that's why I was back for the third time. And I've got to say, I had a bit of a moment where I was like, why am I doing this? You know, I'm sure lots of you are very busy as well. I feel like I'm a busy person, lots of demands on my time. Why am I here looking for fairy lights? I could be doing a lot of other things. But I have to say, that kind of moment of frustration didn't actually last very long. Because I knew, of course, exactly why I was there looking for fairy lights. I knew that the whole point of what I was doing on that little day in the storage cupboard, in the dust and the sweat and all the rest of it, was all in order for the day coming ahead. I had my gaze pretty firmly set upon the wedding day ahead. And that's what gave me a certain degree of commitment and determination and desire to find these fairy lights. Not because I particularly cared about fairy lights, but I knew that the fairy lights would be part of our wedding day. They'd make the reception venue look nice. And my wife was very keen that we had them. And so my perspective, <laughs> that's why I was back there the third time. <laughs> so I guess you could say that my perspective was clear. I knew what I needed to do because I had one eye very clearly trained upon the day ahead. I had pretty clear perspective. That's what clear perspective, I would suggest, does for you. Clear perspective means you know where you're headed, you know what you're living for, and therefore, along the way, day to day, you can live with real focus and clarity as a result. It's the nature of having clear perspective. And we've called this series that we're about to launch today, Perspective. Perspective, live for the day. It's based in the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament, and we've called it Perspective, live for the day. And the author of this book is Peter. And I believe over the next 10 weeks, he's going to help us really live with perspective. He's going to help us be able to see ahead so clearly that you can live in the moment day to day with real clarity, real focus, and real courage and conviction. I guess to put it a different way, if you want to live well each day, Peter's going to point us towards the day in the future. If you want to live well each day, Peter's going to show us that to do that, you need to be having one eye on the day in the future. I'll explain more about that as we go through. But let's get into the passage. As I say, we're in the book of 1 Peter. It's towards the end of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there is the word will appear on the screen behind me. We're in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. I'm going to read the first couple of verses. Then I'm going to pause to give you a very brief little bit of contextual background to what's going on. And then we'll read through to verse 9 together. Okay? So, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, 
Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Just a brief bit of contextual background. This obviously is written by Peter. Peter, if you're not sure, was a really close friend and a close follower of Jesus during his time on earth. And in the aftermath of Jesus' resurrection, the first churches have been popping up all over the Mediterranean and North Africa and so on. And Peter is now a kind of an overall leader of a number of those churches. And this letter that he's writing is written to a number of churches in modern-day Turkey. That's the, the places that he references there. He's writing from Rome, we think, the heart of the Roman Empire, which at that time was governed by the infamous Emperor Nero. And he's writing in about AD 62, AD 63, to these early churches in modern-day Turkey to encourage them, to teach them, and most of all, to help them live with perspective, to help them see clearly the day ahead so they can engage with the day-to-day with clarity. That's what he's doing in AD 62, 63. He goes on to say this, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He likes a long sentence, says Peter. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If I could sum up what Peter is saying in this passage, and indeed in this letter, as we launch this series this morning, it would be this. The best way to live for the day is to live for the day. That's basically his message of the whole letter, not just this passage. The best way to live for the day is to live for the day. You see, so many of us surely want to live each day meaningfully, purposefully, fruitfully, yeah, with clarity and conviction and confidence. And Peter says, great, so do I. He wants the same thing. And the best way to do that, he says, is to live with the day in mind. He wants us to live with the end in mind. So really, his two points, and therefore mine this morning, are just that. Live for the day and live for the day. We're going to look at those two things. Number one, live for the day. I don't know whether you had a a favorite teacher, perhaps, at school. I don't know whether a particular uh, person, male or female, pops into your mind. We think back to a favorite teacher you had at school. Hopefully you had one at some point during those years. I'm thinking back to a a guy called Mr. Noll, who was my history teacher when I was doing my A-levels. And I'm pretty sure that Mr. Noll must have been the basis for Robin Williams' wonderful character in Dead Poets Society. He was kind of a, a dead ringer for that, for that same character, quite an eccentric, animated teacher, quite unconventional. We really loved him as his, for his teaching, partly because he didn't take much notice about the syllabus, but also because he wanted to really engage in the stuff of life and to discuss and so on. 
And uh, he had a phrase that he would use all the time. He would kind of bark at us with a degree of ferocity and kindness at the same time. He would often say, boys, carpe diem, carpe diem, which if you know your Latin, I'm sure you know, means kind of live for the day, seize the day, or literally translated means pluck the moment. And he would often say, seize the day, carpe diem. And his point was that he, he wanted to urge us to live for each day. He really wanted us to grasp the opportunities that each day brought about, to live with a sense of risk and abandon, to be 16, 17-year-olds that didn't think too much about the future, about consequences that, that took the opportunities that school life and teenage life presented, when, presented them with. He was quite an inspiring character, really, for me. Partly because of him, I, I, uh, he, would, he would encourage us to all kinds of things. He would encourage us to, to put forward like new controversial arguments in class. He'd encourage you to try out for a sports team that maybe you wouldn't normally get into. He'd encourage you to go on school trips, to, to maybe think about gap years, to apply for universities that nobody else you thought you could get into. He was always saying, Carpe diem, seize the day, live for the day. And he influenced me to the extent that I took up rugby when I was 16, even though everybody else had been playing since I was about 11 or so. And, uh, and also I applied to a university that I didn't think I would otherwise have been able to get to because of his kind of seize the day encouragement. And along with my own father, he was a reason why I ended up having a go at teaching history myself. So he and his carpe diem mantra were quite influential on me. But that wasn't really, otherwise, that wasn't really the kind of message that I heard that often growing up. It certainly wasn't the kind of message that I heard in church life. Carpe diem, live for the day. It kind of seemed to me, growing up in church life, almost, I guess, almost frowned upon, really, to live with that kind of ethos, to take too much of an interest in the day-to-day things, the opportunity and culture and adventure around. That seemed to me, perhaps, to be a bit frivolous, compared to matters of the Bible and eternity and so on. And to be honest, I guess that it's a a misunderstanding of letters like Peter's, books in the Bible like Peter's, that lent itself to that kind of tone, perhaps. I think it's misunderstanding books just like what Peter's written that lent itself to maybe church life having that kind of tone. Because when you first read Peter's letter, it is possible to think that he too, is not that interested in the day-to-day stuff of life. And even as we bring verses 3, 4, and 5 up on the screen behind me, you can see that Peter straight away is talking about heaven and and life after death and eternity and so on. It doesn't seem like he's that interested in the day-to-day stuff of life. But you might have clocked in my first reading of the passage that actually if you look hard enough, he, he really is. Even in this passage, he says that for a Christian, that our daily life should be characterized by, quotes, inexpressible joy. He says that the, the nature of a Christian should be someone who is rejoicing day in, day out, even when suffering comes. And he's talking about real tough stuff. The Greek translation means like that it's kind of grieving suffering. And he's saying even when that comes, it's possible for the Christian to live with, quotes, inexpressible joy day to day. Radical joy, he says, is daily available to the life of the Christian. And As we go through this letter for the next 10 weeks, it's going to be a really, really great time. I'm really excited about what we're going to see and what God's going to show us. You're going to see that Peter is really interested in the day-to-day stuff of life. You're going to see, for example, that he's really interested in what it means to engage with the questions and the doubts and the rejections that our community and culture have with regards to the Christian life. That's why we're doing our own Ask London series in the autumn. 
And I want to keep encouraging you to be praying and thinking about which friends you want to ask to help us with those videos and upload them to Church App so we can engage really authentically with the genuine questions that our friends have. As Peter goes on in his letter, he, he talks about what it is to engage with daily matters of injustice. He talks about what it is to engage with the challenges and the adventure of marriage, day-to-day stuff. He talks about what it is to engage with, with social authority figures and government structures, the day-to-day stuff of life. You may have been, perhaps you were here last week and uh, when my friend Sid visited us and spoke. And um, it could be that you got maybe the wrong impression from some of the things that he was saying. You see, the authentic Christian life is absolutely not one where we distance ourselves from or oppose the society around us. It's actually one where we are more engaged with the culture and the society around us. That's an authentic Christian life, to be increasingly engaged with the world and the culture around us. More focused, more compassionate, more committed, more adventurous, more risk-taking. That's the kind of day-to-day life that Peter has in mind. And as we learn to live that kind of life, what he's saying is the best way to live like that for the day, the best way to live like that day to day, is to live for the day. You can live like that day to day if you have one eye clearly trained ahead on the ultimate day to come. He says, live like that day to day. I'm going to show you how, he says. But do so with one eye clearly trained, with a perspective that is long and far, and that is looking ahead to the day to come. Just like me in my cupboard looking for those fairy lights, I had one eye clearly trained on the day to come. And that meant that in the cupboard I could work with some degree of commitment and determination and focus. Far more profoundly, Peter's saying is, every day you can live with commitment and focus and compassion and love if you have one eye clearly trained on the day ahead. So number two, what does it mean to live for the day? To live with the end in mind. Let me read verses 3 and 5 again. It should pop up on the screen behind me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's saying, thank you, God. And he says, according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to have a new life, he means. To what? To a living hope. How is that living hope possible? Back in the verse, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead the gospel, the cross and the resurrection. What is that hope that the gospel has won us? Verse 4, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter wants us to live day to day but with the day in mind. Live intentionally each day, he's saying, with one eye trained upon the day ahead. And this is hardly an earth-trashing observation, but it seems to me that as we grow older, our perspective does naturally lengthen, doesn't it? We begin to look further and further ahead as we get a little bit older. We look further ahead to, to, to help us make the decisions of life and so on. We're aware of consequences and long-term considerations and so on. So therefore, as a teenager, it was natural for me that Mr. Knowles' carpe diem mantra appealed. Because teenagers are not wired to think ahead too much, to consider consequences. Like literally, uh, neuroscientists would say that the, the teenage brain is not fully developed. 
And the part of the brain that makes those, those more complex cognitive decisions about long-term consequences and decision-making and so on is genuinely not fully formed yet in a teenager's brain, which is why they find it hard to think too far ahead. If you've raised teenagers or taught teenagers, you may have seen that for yourself. And it kind of helps me make sense of a particular story back in my own teenage years, going back to the same school that Mr. Noel taught us in. And uh, when we got to the end of our school career, we had that final day at school that I'm sure all of you had. It's like a big deal, isn't it? When the upper sixth finish their time at school, obviously they're going to come back and do their exams, but you, it's your last day at school. It's a big deal. You want to celebrate it, recognize it, acknowledge it, because you're, you're moving into adulthood. And my peers are no different. I think every upper sixth and every school everywhere has always wanted to mark this day and do something more daring and more dramatic and potentially more disruptive than the year before. And my friend Francis was no different. Very, very bright guy and very, very committed to outdo what anybody else had ever done before. So we found ourselves uh, coming along to the final, what's called the Leavers Assembly, the Leavers Service. Quite a big deal in our school. The whole school are there and all the teachers are there and all the governors are there. And what Francis had done and that we were kind of in on, and bearing in mind it's 1999, was that he got a little tape recorder and uh, he had let the tape, he'd play, he'd recorded a tape basically, and he timed it so that after a few minutes the tape recorder might play some things. And he managed to sneak into the chapel and hide it underneath the altar at the front of the service. It's a masterful plan. It was going like clockwork because all the everybody came in, the service started, very serious, somber affair. And he timed it perfectly because as the service just reached its very quiet moments, suddenly this little voice piped up Let me out! <laughs> and those of us in the know were sort of giggling away at the back. And the, the chaplain leading the service was looking around, thinking, What on earth was that? Who was that? A few more seconds passed on, and he sort of began to you know, get the service going again. Suddenly, Let me out! This is a breach of my civil liberties. And the chaplain's like, what? Who on earth is that? And teachers are beginning to shh and try and hush certain students. And there's a few year sevens at the front looking absolutely terrified. They haven't done anything, but they're the ones looking like they're guilty. <laughs> a few moments later, let me out. I insist on being released. What on earth is this? And bit by bit, the whole congregation is doing what you're doing and giggling was echoing around the whole place and it started to really unravel. The chaplain was totally thrown by the whole thing. He shouted at some poor little year seven boy right at the front who had no idea what was going on. <laughs> Teachers were beginning to panic and it was, it was beginning to be fairly amusing, at least for us at the back. However, what we didn't know is that Francis didn't just have three or four of those little funny lines. He had 15 and so every time this poor chaplain at the front got the service back into some kind of order, one of these little voices would emerge again. And I have to say to you that the remaining quotes were a bit less polite than the ones I've just quoted to you just now. And so after the seventh and the eighth and the ninth, ninth quote, the whole thing is complete bedlam. There's hilarity and giggling across the whole room. The teachers are wanting what on earth going on, shouting at particular boys who are totally dumbstruck, haven't done anything. And then it started to go on a bit more. You know when you got to that place where it was funny? And now it's just a bit awkward. I'm like, mate, how many of these quotes have you got? And another one comes out, there's a swear word in there. And then to our horror, we realized the deputy head was also with us. Of course he was, all the staff were there. And we'd forgotten, France had forgotten, that the deputy head had served the school for 34 years and that was his final day as deputy head of the school. He was retiring that day. And I'll never forget seeing this poor man with tears in his eyes storming out of the service in total disgust, really, that this final thing had been completely ruined. 
And it was this moment where we're like, oh no, what have you done, Francis? This is awful. This is not funny anymore. And to cut a long story short, he was eventually prosecuted for the crime and was hauled up before the headmaster. He tore a strip off him, told him he was expelled. He couldn't do his exams in the school. It was awful. Eventually, he relented. He was allowed to do his exams in the school. He's a very bright guy. He went off to Cambridge. And I actually saw him recently at our wedding. And you know, I was reminded what a very responsible guy he is now. Mid-30s, senior associate at quite a prestigious law firm in the city. Very responsible guy. Responsible for hugely significant corporate deals. And yet I remember the teenager who could not see further ahead than that one day. He just couldn't think about the consequences that might happen as a result of his actions. And yet as life has gone on, like all of us, he's had a longer and longer term perspective. He looks ahead, thinks about consequences and results and looks further and further ahead, I think, as he's got older. And I guess all of us do that as we leave behind teenage years and maybe student years and so on, begin to look further and further ahead. Because stuff like family comes along and jobs and finances increase and maybe home ownership and marriage and so on. Responsibilities increase, don't they? And so people start considering things like life insurance and pensions and and making a will and so on, and what might happen for our children's future. Yeah, All of us begin to extend and lengthen the perspective with which we see life. And I guess all of us, as that process happens at different times, will probably all project our perspective to the final moment, that moment of death that will inevitably meet all of us, and all of us will pass away. It strikes me that Shakespeare understood the human condition probably as well as anybody. And that in his wonderful play, Hamlet, which you might know of, you probably remember one of the f- most famous soliloquies that Shakespeare gives Hamlet, the to be or not to be soliloquy, probably all heard at some point. Well, later on in that soliloquy, um, Hamlet says this, to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in this sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil? It must give us pause. And what Hamlet is saying is, when I die, what, what lies beyond? What's going to happen when sleep becomes this permanent thing and, and I shuffle off this mortal coil? That's the question he's asking. And I would suggest that all of us have had or will have that Hamlet moment. Simply put, what happens to me when I die? And I would suggest that whether we've concluded there might be something, or there definitely is something, or there absolutely is nothing, and it's just wishful thinking. I think most of us, wherever we stand on that, will have a kind of a, a longing in us that there should be something. And by that I mean that we think, well, given all of the wonderful, great stuff there is in this world, surely it will continue, won't it, in some way? On the other hand, we think, well, also, given all of the awful stuff in this world, surely that will be kind of put right, won't it? So I guess what I mean by that is, on the one hand, we we see all the astonishing beauty of human creativity and the the smile of a child and relationships and architecture and art and music, and we think, surely that must continue in some way. It's not just going to be over, is it? And on the other hand, we look around at the horror of human evil and suffering and injustice and pain, and we think, "Is, is that just allowed to pass? Is that just the way it is? I reckon all of us at some way 
whatever our worldview is, I think this is a cross-cultural thing. We all know that. Everything about the world is not okay. Something is wrong. I think it's a cross-cultural feeling that all of us instinctively had, have. I reckon we all wonder at maybe at some point, just like the wonderful Samwise Ganji in Lord of the Rings, we all wonder, is everything sad going to come untrue? Is there going to be a time when everything sad gets made untrue? I think Tolkien put those words in Samwise's mouth, knowing exactly that it reflected something about the human condition. And in so much of storytelling and and film, of course, it does. (laughs) The sad stuff does come untrue. Evil is conquered. It's a key part of narrative structure. It's called the Act 3 Climax. This guy called Donald Miller in America, he's really helped me understand this. He says that you'll always see in most traditional story structures, you see a very similar structure. Right throughout the ages, you have a character, and that character uh, engages in some degree of conflict or struggle. And at some point, at some point towards the end, that character has a moment where they overcome that struggle, that conflict, that suffering. Evil is beaten, good wins, the sad things are made untrue. It's the act three climax. And of course, in Lord of the Rings, the Act 3 climax is exactly what we see and it's exactly what we long for, isn't it? We love the moment where Frodo throws the ring into the lake of fire and the evil forces of Sauron are defeated and evil is beaten and all the sad things are made untrue. We love that because I think we long for it ourselves. And that's Hollywood, isn't it? That's the Hollywood structure all over. The Act 3 climax built in time after time after time. That's why Luke Skywalker overcomes the forces of darkness and destroys the Death Star. It's why we love that moment in the Shawshank Redemption when Andy Dupre is on the beach in beautiful sun, painting his boat, having escaped from the injustice of jail, knowing freedom forever. It's the Act 3 climax. We love it. In Dead Poet Society, we love the moment when Robin Williams' character can leave his class behind, his work is done, and they're liberated to think freely for themselves. Even in a Shakespearean tragedy like Hamlet, there's an Act 3 climax. Everyone gets their comeuppance. The evil king is killed, the adulterous wife is poisoned, and a new king comes to the throne. It's the Act 3 climax. It's in so much of our culture and our narrative story structure because we love it, and I would suggest we long for it. We long for the moment when everything will be put right, when everything will be okay, when all of the sad things will indeed become untrue. And like just down-to-earth stuff, that's what the umpteen commercials that you and I get bombarded with every day are tapping into. They are. They're tapping into our longing for an Act 3 climax, for there to be a moment when all of the conflict and the struggle goes away. Lease this car, buy this phone, join this dating website, help your kids to behave like this, and you'll have your Act 3 climax, and there'll be peace and no conflict afterwards. That's what they're tapping into all the time. And of course, it doesn't work. So we go back for more and more and more. And if I'm honest, I would suggest we've at times imported this kind of teaching into the church. We've said, have Jesus. Put your trust, your faith in his accomplishments on the cross and the resurrection and everything will be okay. You'll have no more struggle, no more strife, no more conflict afterwards. It's not true. 
The Bible tells us that it's not true, most importantly. And our experience, doesn't it, tells us that it's not true. If you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, I want you to think back to uh, the moment or the series of moments that led you to position as you were exploring the claims of Christ. The moment that led you to the decision that you wanted to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Or the series of moments that brought you to that position. Can any of us put our hand up and say, since then, I've not had a moment of conflict or struggle or strife or suffering? Of course not. I'm looking around at faces that I know and love dearly here this morning who are living now in conflict or struggle or strife or suffering. Becoming a Christian is not the Act 3 climax. If you become a Christian thinking that it is, you become disillusioned and disappointed very, very quickly. That's often why people give up on being a follower of Jesus because subconsciously they bought into the idea is this is the Act 3 climax. This is the moment everything's okay. Now, I, I believe firmly to the bottom of my shoes that following Jesus now on this day is abundant, fruitful, fulfilling life. But it's not the Act 3 climax that our souls long for. Just look at Peter. You know anything about Peter, the author of this letter? He is evidence enough. Before Jesus rocked up, he was happily married, leading a nice fishing business. Following Jesus turned his life upside down, to the point where he was horribly murdered for his faith. Becoming a Christian cannot be the Act 3 climax that we long for. Jesus' death and resurrection is not the Act 3 climax. But it's those two events that mean and guarantee that we can have an Act 3 climax. You see, it's because of Jesus' death and resurrection that there will be the glorious Act 3 climax that Hollywood identified, that Hamlet dreamt of, and that all of us deep down long for. Verse 3 and verse 4. Read it again. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's the Act 2 climax. What is it? An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, because we've, I think, been unable to explain his resurrection in any other way than to conclude he genuinely did rise from death to life. Because of those moments, the Act 3 climax is not only possible, but guaranteed. The Act 3 climax is the moment, the day. It's the day when Jesus returns to complete what he started when he was on earth. Utterly renewing earth with heaven. Utterly redeeming this place with the perfection of heaven. The Act 3 climax is the day. The day when the resurrected Jesus returns to this earth to usher in a new creation, to make this earth exactly like how it was when God first made it, utterly perfect. You see, we often talk, as Christians at least, in terms of going to heaven. And Peter refers to heaven in this passage. And we say things like, Christians get to go to heaven when they die and be in heaven forever. As though heaven is this distant, far-off place, somewhere in the clouds, and there are a sort of a golden tower and some clouds, and there seem to be an awful lot of harps in this place. And when I, was, when I was growing up in church life, this is the kind of image that I think I subconsciously absorbed, that this whole heaven thing was somewhere away, it was in the clouds, there's loads of harps, an awful lot of singing, and it went on and on and on forever. I guess as a 14-year-old, that doesn't excite the heart. 
I think even a musical 14-year-old wouldn't be so excited by that. So I kid you not, I genuinely, when I was 14 years old, I can remember this moment, I genuinely lay in my bed and I prayed, Father God, I don't want to go to heaven. When I die, please can that be the end? I don't want to go. It's good that God doesn't always answer our prayers, eh? I prayed that prayer. But I think I've come to realize that it's just not what the Bible teaches. It's not what the Bible teaches. Listen, let me, let me just give you three key things that the Bible teaches. Number one, a Christian is somebody who has repented, said sorry, and believed in the gospel. The good news of what Jesus has accomplished through his death and through his resurrection. A Christian is not somebody who's earned anything, but who's trusted in what Jesus has earned for them. Number one. Number two, when a Christian dies, the Bible teaches their spirit goes to be with God in, in a heavenly place. It sounds amazing. It's a place of rest and refreshment and beauty and joy. And there is worship happening all the time and you get to join in with that. But that's not the Act 3 climax. A man called Tom Wright helped me with this. I was reading an interview that he did with Time magazine this week. And Tom Wright was formerly the Bishop of Durham. And he talks about, he talks about the life after, life after death. The life after, life after death. And he says, that moment when you die and your spirit goes to be with God in a heavenly place of rest and refreshment, that's not the Act 3 climax. There's a, there's a moment still to come. That's the third thing the Bible teaches, that finally there will be a day, the day, the day that Peter has got one eye firmly trained upon, the day when the resurrected Jesus returns bodily to this earth to make it utterly new and perfect. He's going to continue and complete what he started on earth, redeeming and renewing and perfecting this earth with the majesty and the beauty and the wonder of heaven. That's the new creation that our inheritance is, is for. That's what Peter's got his eye on. The day when Jesus will come. You get a brand new body that works brilliantly. And you get to live forever on this earth. Having watched it being made brand new with the stuff of heaven. Heaven combining with this earth. It's an inheritance that Peter says is imperishable. It can never perish. Why? Because Jesus perished. It's an inheritance that is undefiled. It will never be spoiled. Why? Because Jesus was horribly defiled to make it happen. It's an inheritance that is unfading. It will never, ever go away. Why? Because Jesus was wiped out before he rose again. That's what Peter's got one eye firmly fixed upon. It's going to be unbelievably good. <laughs> just think for a moment. Let your mind just wonder about all the glimpses of goodness and beauty that we get to see. All the time we get to glimpse, don't we? Goodness and beauty. It might be in a painting or in an ocean wave or in the smile of your child or in a, a cathedral or a piece of nature. All, all the time we're glimpsing beauty. All of that is going to be perfected and we're going to get to enjoy it forever. The best meal you've ever had. Food, wonderful food, perfect that's heaven combining with and renewing earth. And on the other side of things, all the sad things will become untrue. What Tolkien knew that we longed for, it's going to happen. It's not going to be a single tear shed in the new creation, ever. Imagine that. Jesus is going to attend to every single act of injustice and evil 
and pain that has ever been committed, he will attend to every single aspect of that and deal with it perfectly. All the sad things somehow will become untrue, just as our hearts long for. So can you see now why Peter lives day to day with, what was it? Inexpressible joy. He's not living in a bunker somewhere just waiting for Jesus to come. Oh, This guy is living tangibly, meaningfully, with courage and risk and adventure every day with inexpressible joy. Why? Because he's got one eye trained upon the day. How can we live meaningfully, meaningfully day to day? We have our perspective fixed upon the day ahead. That's why he says that even the worst of suffering will not crush you if you have a perspective on the day. That's what he says in this passage. Because he knows what I think all of us know. If we're fundamentally, whether we're a follower of Jesus or not, if we're fundamentally living for, for achievement or for success or for comfort or for relationships, if we're actually living for those things and one of those things gets taken out by suffering, then suffering crushes us. Because what, what we're living for has been taken away. But if we're actually living with our perspective and our gaze fixed upon the day when suffering comes, which it does and it will, and it's horrible and painful, it doesn't crush us. It just drives us into the source of our hope and the thing that we're living for. That's why Peter can know inexpressible joy. He goes through some stuff. I haven't got time to go into his biography now. This is not a man that lives in a religious bunker somewhere, ignoring life and society and culture. He's engaging with it and the suffering that comes with it. And he knows inexpressible joy because of his perspective. Because he has an eye, a gaze fixed upon the day when Christ shall come again, as we sung about earlier on. And when you have a perspective like that, when you know what you're living for, where you're heading, then on the journey there, you can live with such poise such a combination of humility and confidence together. If your perspective is clear as to where you're heading, then every day you can live with sharpness and clarity and compassion and love and risk and adventure. It's possible. Peter knows it's possible if you have a perspective clearly trained upon the day. What's the best way to live for the day? It's to live for the day. That's what Peter's teaching us. It's what he's experiencing for himself is what he's going to help us see throughout this next 10 weeks. The best way to live for the day is to live for V-Day.